Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and today with us is Lynn Powell. Powell is the author of three books of poetry, Old and New Testaments, which was the winner of the Brittingham Prize in Poetry, The Zones of Paradise, and Season of the Second Thought, which is the winner of the Felix Pollock Prize in Poetry. Her nonfiction book, Framing Innocence, A Mother's Photographs, A Prosecutor's Prosecutor's Zeal, and A Small Town Response, won the Studs and Ida Turkle Award from the New Press. Lynn Powell is the founding director of Oberlin Writers in the Schools, WITS, a program that engages Oberlin students in teaching creative writing in local schools. She also teaches a wide range of poetry and nonfiction courses in the college's creative writing program, and her poetry and prose have been honored with the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and four Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Awards. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Could you please start us with a poem? Uh, sure. Um, so this is a poem from my second book, The Zones of Paradise, um, and it's entitled Acceptance Speech. The radios replaying last night's winners and the gratitude of the glamorous. Everyone thanking everybody for making everything so possible. Until I want to shush the faucet. Dry my hands, join in right here at the cluttered podium of the sink, and thank my mother for teaching me the true meaning of okra, my children for putting back the growl and hunger, my husband, primo uomo of dinner, for not begrudging me this starring role. Without all of them, I know this soup would not be here tonight. And let me just add that I could not have made it without the marrow bone, that blood brother to the broth, and the tomatoes who opened up their hearts, and the self-effacing limas, the blonde sorority of corn, the cayenne and oregano who dashed in in the nick of time. Special thanks, as always, to the salt. You know who you are. And to the knife who revealed the ripe beneath the rind, the clean truth underneath the dirty peel. I hope I've not forgotten anyone. Oh yes, to the celery and the parsnip, those bit players only there to swell the scene. Let me just say, sometimes I know exactly how you feel, but not tonight. Not when it's all coming to something and the heat is on and I'm basking in another round of blue applause. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I actually wanted to ask about this poem because I think it's a, it's an awesome poem. Um, Where, where did the poem come from and why are tomatoes the most emotional soup ingredient? (laughs) I think tomatoes are the emotional, most emotional ingredient by accident because they're red and, you know, heart shaped (laughs) vaguely and you're, and then you have to open them up. So it, I mean, the, the metaphor. And they bleed when you cut into them. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it seems mean when you cut into it. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that's just sort of the fun of playing with the with the, what the different vegetables offer. Um, <laughs> where did the poem came, come from? It came from exactly where it says it came from. <laughs> you know, being a mom, standing at the sink, listening to the Academy Awards news from the night before and these little speeches by all these glamorous people uh, thanking everybody for making everything so possible and me at the sink and um, 
thinking, oh, well, my life is not that glamorous. And what, <laughs> but what if, what if I treated this life as if it were in its own right? And I, what would my acceptance speech be? And I think um, by the end, I think that word acceptance is important, right? It's sort of, it's sort of this joy um, ultimately in the poem in in the life that is not um not glamorous but is is in the life that um is full of the of everything you need uh to reveal the right beneath the rind the clean truth and underneath the dirty peel and uh and to uh bask in in the pleasure the smaller pleasures of family sure that's awesome. I and I hesitate because I have a follow. I have a follow up for that. I hesitate to ask this early because I don't want to reduce your work down to like a single thing. But one of the many things that that kind of runs through your poetry um, is a sense of being forgotten or underappreciated or just looked over. And like the, in the poem, "The Promised Land," you have the speaker who's being overlooked by the afterlife when they die they literally are forgotten to be heralded to like heaven or the next stage and um in myth you have the speaker that's being outgrown by their daughter and you can kind of feel see the daughter kind of like treating an adult who is the speaker with you know like kid hands almost like there's this role reversal um in postcard to the muse you open the lines that open with the line i wish you were here (laughs) and so (laughs) I'm wondering if that sense of, if that comes from a place or that's just a theme you keep revisiting or how does that find its way into your work? Well, that's really interesting. I, I, um, I wouldn't have identified it as a theme in my work, but now that you have, um, you make me think about it. Um, I, each of those poems, I, I would have, I would have to think about separately, but I think if I were thinking globally, I would think, I think that the part that resonates most with me when you say that is a feeling that is does run, I think, deeply through all the books of feeling um, unable to speak one's mind, when able to assert one's ideas and thoughts directly. Um, that plays in with the whole plaintive poems to the muse why why do you why are you always deserting me running off with other uh other poets uh <laughs> which are really funny by the way I, I thank you <laughs> <laughs> they get so the, most of the muse poems are my third book season of the second thought my most recent book um where i think that sort of uh complaint or troubled relationship between me and poetry between me and writing between me and speaking my mind or, or, or having language for what I need to say comes more out into the open in the third book. And I'm in this, in, in, in these series of poems that in which I'm uh, complaining to the muse or whining to the muse or, you know, poking fun at the muse or, you know, all sorts of things. And I think the poems get funnier as the poem goes on, as the book goes on. And I feel, um, okay, maybe we're, I'm getting caught up with the muse here and he's finally listening to me. But um, I think, that strain, though, comes from growing up when I did, where I did, um, in the culture I grew up in. Um, I was born in 1955 in a small town in East Tennessee, in a in a rather um, 
conservative culture, very loving home, very loving uh, uh, culture that I was in, but also not one that um, empowered a little girl <laughs> mm, sure. necessarily uh, to think for herself. Um, I mean, I did, but I but there was this sense that there was something sort of um, wrong with me that I didn't always think like everybody else. And um, there wasn't a way, it was hard to find the ways, let me put it that way. It's hard to find the ways to um, express my own uh, ideas about things because I lived in a culture in which there was a prescribed ways to think about things. And so poetry, I think, ultimately began the place where I could push back, but it always felt a little fraught it always felt a little scary and, and, and also um, that I didn't have the resources and tools to do it in ways, maybe someone who grew up in a more literary home or an artistic home or a, or a culture that was more freewheeling or more accepting or more open to all sorts of voices and ideas. I didn't grow up in that culture. It was not, again, it's, I I love the way I grew up. I don't, um, um, but it, cause it gave me many other things, mm-hmm. but it did not give me a voice as easily as, um, I think my children came into their own voices. Um, and, uh, when I was raising our children, I wanted them to have a, cl- a strong sense of their voice. And so like, um, there, there were all sorts of ways in which I tolerated a certain amount of sass from them and talking back and disagreeing with me and arguing with me because it was very important for me that they had their voice. And in fact, it, but it was exhausting to be the parent who allows all that, right? And so in my second book, there's a, a mean little sonnet called In Praise of My Daughter's Insolence. It's, it's, it's a tight little sonnet. All the lines are in stopped. It's exact. I am a pentameter. And it's, the rhyme is all right. It's just like kind of rigid poem. And it's, um, but it's, it's in praise of my daughter's insolence. And um, because I wasn't, allowed to be insolent right and so there so my my voice was packed down and constricted the way that sonnet is um but i, I wrote that when i had to remind myself why i was allowing <laughs> my daughter to have such a voice <laughs> it was making my life miserable every once in a while i just see you at the bottom of the stairs like you and your voice <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of what that poem is that's exactly what that poem is yeah <laughs> well it's i i love i love the use of structure there because it's such a deliberate decision and it's such a great use of it too um you're describe what you're describing is interesting because you're 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 describing um you know your creative freedom the poetry giving you the means to push back but your muse poems are so conflicted. And, and so I, I'm curious, do you have, you know, when you, when you were writing those poems, do you have to struggle for autonomy with your own creative voice? Do you find that, you know, your creative voice gets easier to tap into as you get older and you, you get, you gain mastery or, or is it, do you think it'll be an internal struggle? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I think it changes, has changed over time. I think, um, and my poetry has changed over time uh, because of, I mean, I, I think you can read all three of my books of poetry and imagine they're written by the same person and see that they're written by the same person, but the voice has continued 
to shift and grow and change. And I mean, the poems in Old and New Testaments just sound different from the ones in Season of the Second Thought. And narratively, they're different. Um, and I think that's partly that each of those books sort of documents a different decade of my life. I'm a slow writer and, and, and I get all caught up in life. I don't, I'm not the sort of writer who writes all the time. Um, I, I basically, the poems I have are the ones I've published. I don't have this mass of other poems waiting to be published. I throw away the stuff I hate and what's left uh, I published. And, um, but I think that uh, for me, the maybe the poems get sort of stranger and more adventurous in a way. Um, because maybe I've gotten stranger and more adventurous through the years <laughs> because they seem to have captured something about each decade of my life and each, that I've written those in and, and, and what my preoccupations were and are. Um, but you had a very good specific there that I've lost track of. Um, um, the, 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 has my relationship with the muse gotten more conflicted? Um, I think it's gotten more interesting. I think that um, maybe even what I try, I'm trying to do in poems now is different from what I was trying to do at the beginning and more challenging, at least for me. And so, uh, so then it becomes a real kind of um, like relationship with the muse. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're trying to sort of wrestle this thing out Um where and I think in the first book I just needed sort of permission uh, to have a kind of uh, a little sass to the voice I needed to tell the stories. The first book is so much about growing up a Southern Baptist in East Tennessee. Um, so there's a lot of childhood poems, but I'm also a mom at that time. I'm writing these poems of young children, and so raising them differently than I was raised in some ways, but with much continuity as far as love and 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 nurture. And um, and the way the inheritance I had in the theology and the sort of cultural um, stories that come with growing up in a religion or in a denomination is a kind of like an ethnicity. It's kind of like a cultural heritage that you bring. And no matter how you might shift or move in relation to that theology, those stories are still yours. Those metaphors, that language is still yours. And I felt very much in writing those poems about my own children who were not growing up in a Southern Baptist church, um, but yet the language that kept coming to me to describe um, mothering and um, um uh, life and longing and mortality, you know, it was the metaphors and languages from my native tongue, which is the Broadman hymnal in the King James Bible. So in the way those, my childhood and their childhoods began to talk to each other. And in some ways, the, 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 what I needed from the muse then was just sort of permission to do that and not, and to sometimes not do it according to the party line. Um, um, and I think I got that from my aunt Roxy, uh, who appears in that book a few times in, in Promised Land, for example, mm -hmm. uh, that there's these poems about her. She lived to be 105. She died on her 105th birthday. First, first hundred years of her life, she was like just the the most vivid, sassy, fun person I've ever known. And um, she really was the one woman in my life who just spoke her mind and uh, said exactly what she thought all the time, and um, which got her a little into trouble but she was an inspiration for me. So she was actually literally the muse for that first book. But I think as I've moved on into other sort of 
um, needs from my poems, then maybe the the muse has gotten a little more complicated. Yeah, and and you see that, and I think I think that um, risk is a good word. Like you take more, you do more daring stuff. Like your writing is is excellent all throughout. I read I read them in order, and I think by the third book you get you get the most risk, the most layered like investigation of topic. I feel I feel like you feel more comfortable in your own skin when you're writing. Like that's the sense I got. And I I tried to write questions around that. And I was like, nah, I don't want to assume anything. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to I don't want to like say that now, yeah, that's your journey for sure because I I have no way of knowing. And I think that's important even for people listening to podcasts like this or you know other podcasts that do interviews like this that there's a certain amount of assumption that's made when people are exposed to your work. Um, but it's, it's interesting hearing you say that because now I feel like, oh, maybe I should have made some questions because it's bleeding. It bleeds through. I think that does come through in your work. Well, I, I'm going to skip around. I, I, I only glanced at the questions uh, that you had prepared because I figured we would just have a conversation and that's what we're doing. But you you did have, uh, what do you think are the markings of a mature writer? And I don't know that I'm a mature writer, but let's pretend for a moment I am, or let's assume <laughs> that I, I am. Um, I think one of those markings would be humility and that you don't know where the next work is going to come from or if you're going to be able to do it. Um, and that you want to discover what's next. Um, you want to discover what it is you have to say next yes. and um as opposed to playing out what you've done before i mean i think it's it's i i do see in some writers um they've hit on something good that works and then maybe they just keep doing that in various ways um throughout a book maybe just you know the few points are fantastic and then you feel like well but we now we're just doing that over and over or, oh, yeah, your this book is just like that last book. Um, and maybe I would do that if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't seem to be able to do that because I think that um, what interests me personally in writing is to find out what I have to say or to put into language what I haven't been able to say. And maybe that takes us back to your first question, you know, um, about that sense of not being heard or, or in the way I would put it is not being able to speak because I, <clears throat> what I have to say might be heretical or what I have to say might be um, too sassy or too um, whatever. Um, and so I think that, um, and yet that is the thing that pushes me to write. I, I've never written a point where I knew what I had to say or knew what was going to happen ultimately in that deeper way. Yeah. I mean, I know, okay, I'm going to write a poem about standing at the sink and writing, you know, uh, that's a simple one. <clears throat> but even there, the discoveries happened along the way. And that blue applause at the end, which is just the the flames from the gas stove and a little ring on the burner, right? <laughs> it's just <laughs> that, 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 that discovering blue applause at the end. And it, and it was so important that it be blue because, you know, it's um it's not red it's not this it's not the color of passion it's the color of sadness it's this color of of something melancholy too and it has to be that blue applause at the end for the poem for me to 
register at some level um, what one's longing for, when one's needing, or what one doesn't have, or whatever. Um, and I think even if the in the adventure of writing a poem that you kind of know what's going to happen, you make discoveries in the language and you make discoveries in the images that enrich the emotional um, uh, layers of the poem because it gets closer to your real experience. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's true. And I think having done a lot of workshopping, uh, when you when when new writers come in and and they're not sure where to take a poem, a great question for them is well, and and not just to them, but to the entire group of people sitting there, because you know, perspective and sometimes people are too close to their own work. But asking what is the heart of this poem? What do you think the poem wants? Because there's always what we what we want, but sometimes right. we're editing toward an ideal that we can't hit because we're going against the grain of the poem itself. Like once you make the poem, it's its own thing. Absolutely. And I would say it's its own thing because there's something that needs to be said that you don't know, that you think you know what you want to say, but the language is helping you push into something beyond what you knew you had to say or wanted to say into something perhaps more complex. And that, that, um, at least that's, that's what I find, um, drives me in writing a poem to discover what the language knows or what the the language can lead me to knowing myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. Um, and this is, this is like the evolution of your muse later on down the road. You know, at this point you're teaching, you're writing, you're on your own and you don't have, you know, the trappings of your environment. What was it like first leaving Tennessee? Cause you, you, you described you, you're in an interview, you described how, um, when you went off to get your MFA, you had never been north of the Mason-Dixon line. You had been out of Tennessee, I don't know, maybe like twice or some a small handful of times. Uh, so what was it like then when you were first coming out of it, out of that environment? Yeah, well, it was like a magic carpet picked me up and took me to Ithaca, New York, or <laughs> now, and dumped me there. And it, it felt wondrous. It really did. I mean, I felt like a magic carpet. Um, but it also um, was a jolt to realize how different I seemed to everybody around me than I had ever perceived of myself. Um, so when you talk with a thick East Tennessee accent, which I don't anymore, I don't think, but I have hints of one, I think still. Um, uh, and, and people respond like, Whoa, they can't understand you. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I realized that I was sort of seen as a sort of a hillbilly. I was condescended to in some ways as a, as a, uh, a young female. Um, I mean, I did some things that made me condescend to, uh, you know, however you turn that into a, an adjective, <laughs> someone that <laughs> I condescend to, cause I was always, I was pretty much out of my depth. Um, but, um, it also slowly, but people were also fascinated by someone like me who'd grown up in the South, who'd grown up. I mean, it's, I think this is done 1977. And I think even in the, however many years at 40 something years since then, there's much more mixing uh, geographically and between populations, you know, partly because of the internet and all the stuff we see online. But back then, you know, I think people were much more um, separated uh, geographically. And so this, this East Tennessee person comes up from the mountains and, and um, says her name is Lynn, 
instead of, and they'd say they cannot they think leanne leon no Lian, L-Y-N-N, Lian. They said, oh, Lin. <laughs> and I had to learn how to say my own name so they could understand it. Um, and they were fascinated by the way I grew up. And so I began to realize that I had these stories to tell that were, um, were stories I both needed to figure out what they meant to me, the stories of growing up the way I did, um, but that they also might have interest for people who weren't exactly like me. Mm. Um, and it, that had never, that, that, that was um, helpful to me. And in fact, most of the poems in Old and New Testament were workshopped when I was living in, in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, in, a, in a workshop of, of writers, um, almost uh, not, none of them had grown it the way I had. And many of them were Jewish. And, and you know, and, and to, that was a wonderful way to test if these poems were working uh, to communicate what I wanted and needed them to communicate beyond just uh, people who could fill in the blanks. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know from my workshop that there, there are people that will show up who don't fit the mold. We had a, we had a one guy who he wrote these very sermon like poems, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he would, he was, having a crisis of faith in his 80s and so he started writing these poems he started coming to the workshop and he came for like two years and then he's like no my crisis is over so i'm done writing like he just used the poems to get through and they were they were so interesting but people didn't know how to comment on them but you could tell they were heavily impacted by them because some people started picking up some of the things he did and like there's value in having that diversity sail in and just blow everything up and be like here's a completely different thing you guys are all doing confessionalism you know this is all this is all nice but take this <laughs> that's a fascinating story yeah said so that the writing did what it needed to for him but it also did something else out there in the world yeah yeah and you could tell he felt like an outsider like he was nervous when people started talking about his work which i mean was that how you felt like when they were coming when they were coming to your you know when they first started commenting and you're first getting used to this new environment and you're like, these are personal experiences. Did you feel like you might be judged or did you feel like it changed how you wrote? Um, I think, I mean, look, I think I've become, I've become a better writer through every workshopping experience I've been in. Um, all, all the chosen workshop experiences I've been in. Um, and, and, I've been in a workshopping group um, pretty, pretty steadily through my whole adult life. Um, All three of those books, I can describe how different people contributed, you know, insights as I was writing those poems. Um, But I think, I don't know how this happened, but I think very early on, I mean, very early on, I learned to separate myself from this thing I was making and this thing I was making this poem was not me it's this thing I'm making out of who I am out of my longing to find language for something um pressing uh that I don't entirely know what's going to happen and um but I also want it to communicate I also want it to be a way of reaching another person 
Uh, I also want it to be a, a point of contact, a point of connection, community, communication, not with everybody, uh, but with the right, the right reader, the, the the reader who needs it and the reader who can see what I'm doing and push me like, like you are doing in this conversation uh, to think a little harder, to lean in a little more, you know, you're, you're, I can see you're a terrific interviewer because you're, you're listening and you're, you're uh, perceiving what I might need to say and then asking a question to help me along uh, or push me in a, a different direction. And, and, and that's terrific. And that's, what has made me a better writer is when I've been in that kind of dialogue with readers who are at least interested in what I'm doing, if not really attuned to it or want, wanting to hear it. Um, so I think another mark of a mature writer is being able to discern who who are good readers for you at that moment in time. Sometimes that changes over time. Who are the good readers? Who are the readers who fundamentally um, can hear what you're needing to do or trying to do and push you to do it even better than you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think I was really lucky in Princeton that um, I just stumbled into being in this writer's group that had been formed in the seventies. And I was there now in the eight, in the mid, the second half of the eighties. My husband was teaching at Princeton university at that time in the physics department. And um, there was this writer's group that had been going on for 10 years already and still going on called US One Poets. And it had been, um, it had been formed by Alicia Ostreicher. I don't know if you know Alicia's poetry. She's so just terrific, mm-hmm. very important uh, poet, um, a Jewish, Jewish uh, poet, feminist poet, and, um, and some other, other poets at the time who were publishing a lot. And, uh, but it, everybody was in it, uh, little old ladies, we wrote with their purple pins. I guess that's what I'm becoming. Um, and, uh, and, you know, chain smoking grad students all in black. And there was about 30 of us once a week for hours, every Tuesday night. And we'd go from eight to 30 until after midnight. And it was kind of astonishing. It was so uh, eclectic and kind of eccentric, but some really tough, good writers in there who are, you know, publishing at very high levels. And uh, Toy Derricott was in there for a while. Um, so um, it was just a great environment for, and kind of rough and tumble of hearing all these different people's response to my work. Some of it was off the wall and some of it was like searingly good, you know, and searingly helpful. And um, maybe that also helped me continue to develop the senses. This is this thing I'm making and this is a place you can take risks with it. Um, and then you can listen to what comes back and then you can listen for what was helpful and what wasn't and sieve that out and figure out what you're going to do with it. Um, don't remember your question, but <laughs> no, that's okay. you answered my question. That's what it made me say. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's perfect. That is, that is an excellent answer. Um, I, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, cause you've set up a, a variety of writing programs and you've, developed content from kindergarten all the way through college and uh you you said you wrote for decades with the new jersey state council of the arts the ohio arts council the geraldine and our dodge foundation um and then you took that and you developed programming for oberlin in and a community-wide thing for and so i was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit your experiences and and how that came about um well the it originally came about because um, when I was finishing my MFA in 1979, um, my dad was trying to get me to come back and live in Jefferson City, Tennessee, 
And he talked the superintendent of schools into hiring me as a poet in residence for the school system for a year. I mean, this is ridiculous. This has happened. It is completely ridiculous. But it was the late 70s and the poetry in the schools work was just starting to become this national movement. And there, Kenneth Koch had put out a few books about it. Um, and but it was still really new. And I mentioned it to my dad. He said, oh, that's what we need down here. And he talked the superintendent of school to hiring me full time as a poet in residence. It was ridiculous. That's amazing. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. There were like two or three Kenneth Coke books. They were sort of for elementary school, but I was doing the high school. I just made this stuff up, basically. <laughs> um, and I was terrible. But I had to learn very quickly how to not be terrible because every Monday I'd walk into a new, uh, it was a big consolidated high school. I had to walk into a, 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 a teacher's language arts classrooms for the week. And I'd have her four language arts classes for the week for, and I had to turn them into poets and make them love it <laughs> pretty fast or there would be chaos and riots, right? Because sure, I sure. this little, you know, this, you know, short, goofy person walks in the class and says, we're going to do poetry, you know, uh, you know. So I had to, I, well, here's where my being raised a Southern Baptist really came in handy because I used to imagine when I was a kid, I would grow up to be an evangelist or a missionary. And I actually used to play games by myself in the living room where um, I would get the hymnal and uh, my Bible and I would pretend that the, you know, the imaginary people on the couch were the people I was trying to save, convert yeah. So I started, you know, I was going to win their souls over so they could, you know, be saved. I sort of channeled all that the rest of my life in the classroom, <laughs> but trying to win people to poetry. And so I felt like I need to give these people a conversion experience. They need, these kids needed to know that poetry um, can change them. Right. Yeah. And so I learned how to do that really fast <laughs> because I had to. And so by the end of that year, I had worked with hundreds and hundreds of kids 12th grade, all the way to the third grade, highly successfully. We published books of their poetry, started an after school poetry club. Um, the kids just wanted more, you know. Uh, I still hear that, that was in 79. You do the math. I still occasionally hear from a kid who was in that class who's now, you know, in their late 50s, you know, saying, I still remember the poem I wrote. So um, it was from that experience that a few years later, when we moved to Princeton, I applied to the New Jersey State Council of the Art because at that point, now we're in 1985, this stuff was becoming more widespread. State arts councils, state arts arts councils, were um, having writers in the schools program. They were sending writers out into schools, and so I became part of the and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. had just do, started doing that, and it was just such a rich environment in in the late 80s in in New Jersey. I worked all over the state. I worked in you know, elite schools like uh, some Princeton private schools. I spent months in the the public schools of Princeton Elementary, working K through four, um, long term residencies. You know, month long residency in this school, month long residency in this school. Um, I spent, but then on the other extreme, I was at the Newark High School for pregnant girls for a residency. Mm-hmm. And so I really did all grades and at all levels of ability, uh, all different kind of urban environments. Um, I did a long-term residency at the Atlantic City High School. I was traveling back and forth. So, um, and I worked across the curriculum. So I would go into science classes and do poetry. I'd go into art classes and do poetry. So when you do that kind of work, 
you you do have to win people over pretty quickly, right? What you learn is from the moment you walk in there, it's got to matter to those kids. You got to bring something that matters to them. And, um, and you, you, it's not like walking into a college class where everybody's, people may be going out of their minds uh, with boredom, (laughs) but they're going to sit there politely. (laughs) Right. Most of the time. Right. Um, th- there's not going to be a riot. People are not going to pull each other's hair. There's not going to be you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so that same sense that every minute has to matter and that I'm going to bring here something to this classroom because I think it matters and I think it's going to matter to you. And I'm going to engage in an authentic conversation with you about it. And I'm going to learn from you as you're learning from 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 me. And always treating every classroom I walk into as an opportunity for me to learn um, and for me to give something that I think will matter and um, and not wasting any time. (laughs) (laughs) Is it that right? Yeah. And so at Oberlin, um, when I started teaching here, I had sort of left that work behind in the late 90s. I'd done a lot of work in the Princeton elementary schools when my kids were there And, and then a little bit in their middle school when they were there. And then they were off to other things. And then I, uh, I was working on my nonfiction book and I stopped teaching for a while. And then I, I got a little gig teaching at university of Akron um, in their uh, English department. And as that was ending, um, Oberlin asked me if I'd come teach a poetry class as an adjunct. Um, and I, I, I did. And I said, you know, I know how to do this thing uh, working with kids in the schools. And I think it would be great for Oberlin students to learn how to do this work because it gets them out of what we call the Oberlin bubble, you know, <laughs> and they cross the street in the community, which is a very different um, place than the campus. Mm. And I said, um, you know, I could, I could take them into the schools. We could do this together. And anyway, that's how the program evolved. And, uh, and now we've done it 16 years um, where I've, I've taken eight to 10 college students who we spend uh, four hours a week, just getting in, in intense workshop sessions, getting them ready to go into the into the middle school to do residencies with me in the middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, but and what I emphasize there is that, you know, you're going to learn as much as you teach them. <laughs> you know, when we walk into that classroom, everybody's a teacher, everybody's a learner. And you better make sure what you got to give them, you know, is going to matter. So, you know, so I think that um, I think I I love teaching at all levels. And it doesn't feel very different at <laughs> the different levels. <laughs> okay. And I, I think that's true. To, to it's, I, I don't have nearly as much experience as you, but last year I did several youth workshops. And first time I walked in with like regular stuff, like I tried to find poems that were age appropriate, that were like not age appropriate. I mean, obviously I'm censoring the material they're reading, but I wasn't look, out to censor. I was more out to find stuff that would be fun to read. But I had these like generic workshop prompts and then I wrote specialty prompts based around like Minecraft and movies they've seen and like natural disasters and kids like suddenly ate at those topics. And it was very easy to get them to write um, just brief anecdote, because I think that everything you're saying sounds on the money just from a much more experienced, much wiser person. <laughs> um, oh, no. <laughs> How, how do the how do the Oberlin students respond to the training and, and to being in the classroom? Because that sounds like an excellent way to get 
college students prepared to use stuff beyond just getting good at typing things. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the word that comes off uh, up most frequently in the course evaluations is transformative. Oh, oh, that's a great word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it changes them pretty dramatically in lots of ways. That's awesome. Yeah. That's such a it's fun not thing. an easy process for them. You know, there's often tears, <laughs> but um, uh, it's, it is trend. I, it, I, I watch that happen. I watch them change in the course of the, of the time we have together and, uh, and they reflect that in their, what they say about the course. Mm. Yeah. It, um, okay. That's, that's cool. So, so I would describe your work as keenly observant. I think it's uh it's it's meditative it's profound it's often watching it's a it's a watchful voice um what would you say about your writing and what do you want people to know about your work oh um i like what you said (laughs) (laughs) i i like that a lot um i think It's a way of thinking through experience for me. And so I think that's where the word meditative comes from. I also think it's the word, word your word attentive. I think it's quite visual. I, I, I think it's very soaked in the natural world. Um, I, I spend, I, I get a lot of sustenance from being outdoors and being something larger than myself and larger than my my own preoccupations. Um uh, there's a lot of visual art in it um, because the other place I feel like I can enter something and lose myself in something larger than myself is in in the experience of, of visual art um, and museums. I'm sort of my holy spaces is outdoors and uh, and um, in a museum. Um, I think that the other thing I would I would say is that. Um, I really treat language and, and the way I tr- the way I teach at every level. This is true, uh, and and the way I write myself, it's true. I treat language as the, a medium, and as a medium that I am collaborating with. So it's not a medium that I imposing my will and ideas on. It's the medium that I am in collaboration collaboration with, and I. Um, find my way through this interaction with language into what I have to say. And um, so it's, it's what I, in all the kind of things I bring to a classroom, both uh, middle school to college is getting others to have that sort of experience that, um, that you're discovering through language. And so I think there, there are ways in which I think my poems may reflect that. Um, and that I think, especially a lot of trend these days in, in poetry, and this is not a criticism, it's just an observation, is more straightforward and almost prose-like in its um, voice. Um, and I think there are poems that need that, and they're, uh, and this is not a criticism. Uh, I can't write like that. Um, I, I think I I require a kind of richness in the language that... Uh, to 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 give me what I need 
to find what I have to say. And so I think that may be something that feels a little different, especially in my most recent book, than maybe some of the other poets even that I admire um, or that come in through my um, inbox every day. And I read the poems. And I think, oh, that doesn't, that sounds different to me than what I try to do, but that's okay. That's okay. But I think that is characteristic of, especially my later poems, kind of maybe a, um, uh, a succulence to the language sometimes that I, I never want it to be obscuring or opaque or for its own sake. Mm-hmm. But I love I love that pleasure. I, I can't, one of the ways I just love the pleasure of language in my mouth. Yeah. I love reading my poems aloud for that for that reason. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. That's that's cool because I think some I think some people sit out to write puzzles and uh, you know and sometimes I'm not in the mood to read puzzles. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also fascinated by how they got there. Like it's still a cool exercise, but I also have moved away from that as I've gotten older, I think, but you know, personal thing. Very and cool. it's, it's always when the complexity of experience sometimes, or the complexity of a feeling sometimes demands a complexity of language. And there can be poems I bring into my classroom at the college, you know, in my regular poetry classes that for me, is just a completely transparent poem. It's an easy poem. Yeah. And, and my students will feel like it's very difficult. And then we'll sort of go through how the images are working and the language is working. And then sometimes their response is like, oh, well, um, basically th- those things got put there to make it hard. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> where I think it, that's true in a lot of poems, but in really a good poem where it's working is that they're necessary. <clears throat> they're necessary to hold the complexity of a feeling or the complexity of experience. And that complexity of, of metaphor or image is what is the meaning of the poem and that um, we don't always spell things out directly enough when we use images because that is how we perceive reality. That's how we know things. You know, we're not all walking around all the time with captions over our heads for everything we're seeing or doing. Um, Thank God for that. (laughs) Thank God for that. You know, that people interpret what they see as do or the look on our face or how we hold the orange. And so that poems then try to capture that in images because um, it's not all chaperoned by a statement. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Um, would you mind sending us off with a poem? No. Well, this is one that you and I talked about before we started um, talking. And it brings us back to thinking about um, how we learn from others in workshop and how we learn from others who are our readers and our, our close readers this is poem is entitled Master Class, and it's for Elton Glazer, who uh, is another wonderful Ohio poet and has been an important mentor for me, just in the give and take of showing our poems back and forth to each other. And um, Elton is one of those readers of the years who's asked me to keep um, going deeper into my collaboration with the language. <clears throat> Master Class. The wind stays up all night and edits November's rough draft of the yard. It sees right through the minds of the star magnolia and the sidewalk maple and rips out the rot and the dead wood, the dull leaves hanging on for a last sip of sap. By morning, the ground's cluttered with calls for the brush pile and there's a widow maker to hack and drag 
and hide along the margin. Oh, I could build one hell of a fire with all these flaws I never noticed, hovering summer long inside the glib green consensus of the trees. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing. Okay, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Lynn, I can't thank you enough. Thanks again for doing this. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. It was really fun to talk. Mm-hmm.